questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. I know you're lying. Now, I'm not referring to you, dear listener, but how many times have you mentally thought of those words when talking with someone? Is it just a gut feeling, intuition, or just a guess? When people have information they don't want to share, they will often be deceptive in their statements. Are there techniques used by professionals in order to detect deception? Yes, there are plenty. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at VeritasRadio.com. Subscribe so you can listen to all of our radio programs. And to discuss more about deception detection, tonight's special guest has written a few books, including Don't Be Deceived, the definitive book on detecting deception, and I Know You Are Lying, Detection Deception Through Statement Analysis. His name is Mark McClish, a retired deputy U.S. Marshal. For nine years, he taught interviewing techniques at the U.S. Marshal Service Training Academy. Based on his research, he developed the statement analysis technique for detecting deception. He currently gives seminars on his techniques throughout the United States. His website is statementanalysis.com, and he joins us from Charlotte, North Carolina. Hello, Mark, and welcome to Veritas, a place where we frown upon deception. How are you? I'm doing well. Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, but you hold the registered trademark for the term statement analysis. What does that really mean? Uh, Well, statement analysis is the process of uh, analyzing how a person phrases their statement in an effort to determine if they're being truthful or deceptive. And sometimes we can gain additional information by looking at how uh, the language that a person uses. Now, tell us more about your journey into deception detection. When you joined the U.S. Marshal, is that what you expected you were going to be doing? Well, I always had a goal, as I like to teach, of getting to our training academy. So um, I spent nine years teaching at our training academy. And when I first got there, they asked me, well, what do you want to teach? And would you be willing to teach interviewing techniques? And I thought I was a pretty good interviewer. So I said yes. And in preparation to train our students, they sent me to some classes on uh, linguistic analysis. But the one that stood out to me was a, a course called SCAN. SCAN stands for Scientific Content Analysis. And Avignon Sapir had done some research and uh, taught the class, and I was just very impressed with how, with what he had to say and with what he discovered over the years. So for the next nine years, as I was teaching at our training academy, I decided to conduct my own research to verify some of the things that he was teaching us, but to see what else I could discover in, in terms of detecting deception. And that's what I've been doing uh, for 25 years now uh, with my research. Is is the polygraph the go-to mechanism used in law enforcement today for deception detection, Mark? It is the go-to uh, instrument uh, because it can, when administered properly, uh, be very accurate. As you, most of your listeners know, it's not admissible in court, but it gives the police, helps them eliminate suspects. But I've heard some people can actually beat the polygraph, and, and you know, in doing research before, while I was reading your book, I found that the first modern polygraph was invented in 1921. Is there a newer technology that could replace the polygraph in order to provide a, a more accurate deception detection modality? I don't know of any uh, machines that are better. I mean, they have a voice stress analysis analyzer, which detects uh, a person's voice. If the pitch goes up or down, it can help them to determine if they're being truthful or not. It's not as accurate, in my opinion, as as a polygraph. Uh, The polygraph is the standard right now, but with uh, the the statement analysis techniques, uh, it does a lot more than the polygraph, because the polygraph is limited to yes or no questions. And while with using the statement analysis techniques, we can analyze yes or no questions, what type of answer a person gives, but we can also analyze a statement. You know, tell me what happened. Tell me what you did. Tell me what you saw. Whereas the polygraph uh, can't be used in those type of situations. Well, the polygraph measures, what is it, the breathing? What exactly does it measure and how accurate, percentage-wise, from 1 to 100 would you say it is? Well, it measures breathing, uh, pres- or perspiration, I believe the heart rate, 
and when it detects these subtle changes, it's an indication that you know the person perhaps uh, is a little on edge, and maybe they didn't give a truthful answer. As far as accuracy, again, it depends on who's administering the test. It depends on the equipment they're using, if it's all properly calibrated. In my opinion, they're very accurate. You know, I'd put it, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the time they're going to they're going to get it right. Now, you say that it's very difficult to be a good liar. But, you know, even though I've, uh, I have a good uh, BS, let's call it what it is, BS meter, in my experience in business, I've, I've bumped into so many people who lie for a living. They actually believe their lies. Is it either because most of the population is not trained to detect a liar, or do we just trust too much? Probably a combination of both. We're, we're definitely, I think, in America, a trusting people and the trusting nation. Uh, but then we do come across people that are a little skeptical, so then we kind of raise our guard. Um, but the problem is we don't listen to what they're saying. And as you mentioned, I, I, I say, there's, I say we, we hear the term often that he's a very good liar, but I just say, no, there's just poor listeners. And there's no such thing as a good liar. And we know some people are better liars than others. But if you listen to what a person's saying, you'll you'll really find out, well, they weren't lying. They were telling the truth. But they were probably qualifying their statement or they were withholding you know, certain information. But most of the time, especially with our politicians, every once in a while they'll tell an outright lie. But most of the time they just kind of stretch the truth a little bit. <laughs> That's, yes. I'm just thinking that some people who go through a polygraph test, they may be actually nervous. So even though they may be giving the right answer, the answer may be making them nervous. I, you probably have heard of the white robe, high blood pressure. Some people who go to the doctor and they're totally fine during the annual checkup. And all of a sudden, because they're being measured, their, their blood pressure, it spikes right there. And the doctor says, well, you need high blood pressure medication. Does this happen once in a while in, in polygraph testing or even when questioning? Uh, yeah, it can happen when taking a polygraph or, or just being questioned in general. Uh, some people, as you mentioned, that maybe they're afraid of the machine. Uh, in terms of just questioning somebody, uh, some people are afraid of law enforcement and think, you know, believe you're going to think I'm guilty even though I didn't do it. And so they, they get a little fidgety. And that's why the same thing applies with, you know, trying to read somebody's body language. It may be they're making certain movements, not because they're being deceptive, but they are a little bit on edge or um, think you're just going to assume that they uh, are guilty. And so it's something we do have to take in consideration. With a polygraph now, they will start off with some base questions that a person should be to answer truthfully, their name, their address, and that's try to establish that baseline and, and try to also you know, get them at ease a little bit. They're asking easy questions. These are questions I know the answer to. And so you're trying to do your best to eliminate that, to make the person very comfortable so that when you start asking more sensitive questions, if they didn't do it, they're going to give you a good response. And if they did do it, they maybe will show some indication of deception. I remember the movie, the Steven Spielberg movie, Minority Report, where they had the pre-crime unit. Now, technology-wise, I know somebody who's behind a company that it's uh, I detect. Basically, it's a, uh, they call it the most accurate lie detector available because it's using the the, the eye, the the something with the eye, and apparently has a ninety-eight point five percent accuracy rate. If there's something like that, and they're using it, for example, with law enforcement in many countries, before they, you can even be employed by law enforcement agencies, you have to pass that test. Do you think in the future, our law enforcement, even you know, governments, politicians, may use this technology in order to have people even consider for a position or even elected for a position? Um, I, I kind of lost it a little bit, Mel, as far as your question. Um, but yeah, there are techniques um, in looking at the eyes that, that uh, can let us know if a person is being under some stress and therefore perhaps being deceptive. Um, it's very difficult to spot, but if, if you're talking about having a, a machine that can you know, watch a person's eyes, then, then that's going to raise the accuracy of that. I don't know how much in terms of minority report. I mean, obviously, the minority report was they're going to predict the crime ahead of time, something we're not going to be able to do. But, yes, by observing these different nonverbal signals or eye movements, it's possible to determine if this is a 
a deceptive type of person. Is this person always going to be truthful with us, or is he, you know, going to show some indications of being a deceptive person? Let me re- repeat the last part of the question because I think it's interesting for the listeners. I was mentioning how this company uses the, te- the technology with governments around the world, and they're using that with law enforcement. They're using it with politicians. And before some people can be employed by the different agencies or even politicians in different positions, unless they pass that test, they're not allowed do you think that technology would apply, would be applied here in the United States in the future in order to filter out deceivers? It's possible because we, we do that now in some areas uh, with the polygraph, especially in law enforcement. Not every law enforcement police department uh, gives their applicants a polygraph, but many do. And if you fail that polygraph, most likely you're not going to get hired. So I could see them taking it you know, one step further if the technology is there, and we can also, you know, um, by analyzing their, their eye movements to determine if they're, if they're being truthful or not, I could see that happening in the future. Now, let's dive into your books. I thought they were fascinating. It's a great go-to guide to detect deception. Let's talk about some of the verbal statements liars use. Give us some. Well, the first thing I tell people is that look at how a person phrases their statement. Listen to the specific words. Uh, uh, years ago, we had the uh, Nancy Kerrigan incident, when which figure skater Nancy Kerrigan was uh, struck with a metal police baton and knocked out of competition. And all eyes were on her rival skater, Tanya yeah. Harding. Did Tanya Harding have anything to do with this? Well, in one of her Tanya Harding's first statements, she said, I don't know for sure anything about what's going on at all. Well, the key words there, she said, I don't know for sure. She couldn't say, I don't know what's going on, because that would be a lie. So she qualified her statement by saying, I don't know for sure what's going on. She was telling the whole world, I know something. I just don't have all the details. But that went right over everybody's heads. But a good reporter listening would have asked her, well, tell me about the things you're not so sure of. Because two weeks later, she did come out with additional information. And so you want to listen to how people you know, phrase their statements. In the case of... Uh, Casey Anthony, the Orlando, Florida mother, who said that she dropped her daughter off at the nanny's apartment and then 31 days later hadn't seen either one of them. In her written statement to the police, uh, she wrote that after dropping Kaylee off at tonight's apartment, I proceeded to head to my place of employment, Universal Studios Orlando. Well, the key word is she used the word I proceeded, which means she began an action doesn't necessarily mean she completed that action because it turned out that was all a lie. But had she said, you know, I went to my place of employment, that's a good definitive statement. But that would be an outright lie. So she kind of qualified her statement by using the word proceeded. And, you know, we pick up on that. We're, of course, we're going to check it out. But it gives us an indication that perhaps, you know, you didn't go to uh, Universal Studios or you don't work there, which turned out to be the case. So you just want to listen to, you know, what type of words a person uses you know, in, in phrasing their statement. There's, there's a lot of different ways people can qualify a statement. But the key is to remember that most people don't want to lie, and most people will not lie. I mean, every once in a while, people do tell a lie, especially with specific questions. You know, did you do it? No. Well, maybe that's a lie. But when you ask a person an open-ended type of question, all right, tell me what happened, tell me what you did, uh, very rarely will a person tell a lie. So the statement itself is probably a truthful statement. It's just if a person uh, doesn't want to tell you something, then they're going to withhold information, use certain words to skip over parts of their statement, their story, or they'll qualify it. And so, you know, just got to carefully listen or look at how a person phrases their statement. So are those words like uh, Tonya Harding? I don't know for sure, that, that key there, for sure. Or Casey Anthony saying, I proceeded to go to my workplace at Universal. Are those words like coming out of them, or are those words given to them by their defense attorneys in order for them not to, quote-unquote, lie? Well, most of the time, and it depends when the police get involved, and if it's an initial statement, then obviously it's coming from the subject themselves. But you're right, other times they get with their attorney, their attorney will sometimes craft a statement for them. Uh, but the statement analysis techniques still work because, it, uh, again, people's words will betray them. And even sometimes I've seen statements where it's pretty obvious the attorney wrote it, but it still revealed deception because the attorney 
will always say their client's innocent, but deep down, most of the time, they know maybe that they did do it, but they're always going to support them. But yet, it'll it'll their words will betray them, indicating that they maybe do believe their their client is guilty, but yet even though they're trying to spin it and say they're that they're innocent. But it's always better if we can get the statement you know directly from somebody before they have a chance to uh, you know talk to an attorney or spend a lot of time thinking about it. Bill Clinton. Wasn't he also interviewed and uh, about the use of drugs? And he said, I haven't broken any United States law, when in fact, you and I know what he was saying. Right. In that case, he uh, uh, the question was, have you ever used illegal drugs? And he said, I've never broken the laws of my country. Now, there are technically three areas in that statement that indicate deception. Uh, the first one is, is he didn't answer the specific question. The question is, has he ever used illegal drugs? And he didn't say no. He just said, "I've never broken the laws of my country." What I didn't—I didn't ask if he broke the laws of our country. So he didn't answer the specific question. Uh, the second one, as you pointed out, he said, uh, "I've never broken the laws of my country." And finally, a reporter asked him if he ever broken the laws of another country, and that's when he admitted that while he was in England attending Oxford, he didn't inhale whatever <laughs> it was, but he did experiment. Right, did inhale. But the other indication of deception in that answer is his use of the word "never." And this is a big one. Um, the word never does not mean no. The word never means not ever. So you can't use the word never as a substitute for the word no. But deceptive people will often do that, and that's what Bill Clinton was doing. Instead of saying no, I've not used illegal drugs, he used the word never. And so it's you know it's it's a word I call it. It's a unique word that I refer to. That there's several unique words I tell people you want to listen for, and one of them is the word never. No, help me. Like there was an employee, there was an employee that was uh, suspected of smoking marijuana on the job, and when they asked him, "Did you use any marijuana during work hours?" he said, "I never smoked any dope in the building." Well, again, he used the word "never" as a substitute for the word "no," and he also qualified his statement by saying "in the building" versus. Turns out he was smoking dope in the parking lot. Now, to most people, the word "never." means no. Help me understand, when someone is asked a question that requires a yes or no answer, and as you're saying, why is the word never unacceptable? Because it doesn't mean no. If you look it up, it means not ever. So now, if a person was asked, have you ever, technically they could say, I have never, I have not ever. So I tell people, interviewers, try not to use the word ever in your specific questions. Just take it out. Have you used illegal drugs versus have you ever used illegal drugs? But the word never um, doesn't mean no. So you can't substitute it for the, the word no. And this will show up a lot of times in deceptive statements. And this, this has to do more with specific questions than a statement itself. But I'll, you'll find a lot of times deceptive people will, you know, did you take the money? I never took the money instead of saying no. I mean, the word never means, as I said, not ever, so that technically the person's talking about their entire lifetime. But I'm just talking about this particular incident. Have you done this? And the correct answer would be to say no. It's acceptable to say no, I never did that. That's acceptable because as long as they say no, they've answered that specific question. Yeah, that brings me back to what was the name of the... Gary Condit. Gary Condit. When he was interviewed, he was very, very direct in the answers that he gave, except for one question. Remember what it was? Um, did you say anything or do anything that could have caused her, which was Chandra Levy, to drop out of right. sight? Yes. And he said, uh, I believe it was, uh, you know, Chandra and I never had a crossword. But all, as you point out, I think Connie Chung had asked him six questions, and five of them he answered directly. No, I did not. I didn't. But that one he couldn't answer directly. And so it tells us he's withholding some information. Okay, so help me understand, Mark. When someone is asked a question that requires yes or no answer, why is the word never, which I think a lot of people assume that means no, but the word never is unacceptable? It's unacceptable because the word never means not ever. So when a person answers with the word never in lieu of the word no, they haven't answered that specific question. I mean, the word uh, never, because it means not ever, encompasses the person's entire lifetime. I have not ever done that, essentially. But with most specific questions, they're asking about this incident right here. Did you take the money? And so the correct answer would be no. You know, I did not take the money versus I never took the money. 
Oh, I see. It's not an absolute, but 90% of the time it's going to bear out true that if a person uses the word never as a substitute for the word no, that they're being deceptive. I see. So if I understand correctly, never could mean I never did it before this event. That that could be what's going through their mind, right? And that's why they can say it that way. Now, in your research on deceptive language, have you found certain unique words deceptive people like to use? Yeah, in addition to the word never, uh, deceptive people sometimes use the word just. Now, there are several ways you can use the word just. He is a just person. But most of the time when you hear the word just, a person is minimizing things. Now, if they minimize time, that's acceptable. He, he just left the building. We don't know exactly when, but it's an indication you know, it's a very short time period. But when people use the word just to minimize their actions, it's an indication they may have done more. You know, I just went to McDonald's and came home. Now, if the action was immediate, that would be acceptable. But as an interview, it raised a red flag for me where I'd start asking additional questions because the word just isn't needed. I went to McDonald's and came home. That's all they need to say. So why did they add that word just? I mean, Bruce Jenner uh, was back in 2013, had his Adam's apple shaved. Uh, TMZ asked him about that, and he told them, I just never liked my trachea. That's why he was having the procedure. But he used but he used the word just. He could have said, I, n- I never liked my trachea. But he added the word just, trying to minimize why he was having that procedure. And, of course, we all now know the big reveal. It was more than not liking his trachea. People's words will betray that. Going back to the word never, you know, to, to me, before I, I spoke with you today, if I ask someone, for example, have you ever gone skydiving? And if the answer is I have never gone skydiving. I take that as a no, but now it means I have never gone skydiving prior to today, for example. That's that's a one way to, to view it. Now, again, in your question, you ask them, have you ever? And so since the word never means not ever, the person may be picking up on your use of the word ever and saying, I have not ever done that. I mean, the best question would be, have you gone skydiving? And the, the correct answer would be no, you know, I have not gone skydiving. So when somebody uses the word never, that's a big clue. As a substitute for the word no. Yeah, there are correct ways to use the word never, but you can't use it as a substitute for the word no. What about the word actually? How important is that word in detecting uh, deception? Um, it comes up every once in a while. The word actually means a person is comparing two thoughts. Now, people use the word actually to give it their answer some emphasis, which is fine, but it also it always indicates they're comparing two thoughts. Uh, for example, did you go to Disney World last week? Actually, I went two weeks ago. Well, the reason the person used the word actually is because the interviewer suggested two weeks ago, and they're comparing that with their answer of no, it was last week. And so most of the time when you hear the word actually, you'll be able to see what the person is comparing. But there are some situations or some questions and answers where you don't know what they're comparing. And that means we have undisclosed information. Yeah, I asked a friend once, say, what, um, let's see, the question was, uh, what'd you do last night? And she said to me, actually, I went to a party. Well, she used the word actually, which means she's comparing going to a party with something else that, you know, that she was thinking about. And so I said to her, well, what did you want to do? And she said, well, I wanted to go shopping, but then realized I realized I had a birthday party to attend. So because she knew she was thinking about something else and she's making this comparison of what she wanted to do with what she did do, it caused her to unknowingly use the word actually. Because she could have just answered my question by saying I went to a party. That would be a good answer as well. But it caused her to use the word actually. So you're looking to see when you hear the word actually, do you know what the person is comparing? And a lot of times you'll be able to see the comparison. Uh, did you buy a new car? Actually, I bought a new truck. They're comparing car with truck. But if you don't know what they're comparing, then you have undisclosed information. Now, here's another word that a lot of liars use. And, you know, you just put things in perspective because I really never put two and two together after before I read your books. The word with. Yeah, that one goes unnoticed a lot uh, because it's a word we use every day. But the word with indicates distance. You'll see something before the word. You'll see something after the word. And the word with you know, creates that separation. So the question is, should there be distance in that statement? Is there a better way of saying it? 
uh, years ago, I had a case where a, uh, a man and wife were driving to breakfast. He was driving their van. And on the way, he decided that nature was calling. So he pulled off the side of the road, jumped out of the van to relieve himself in the bushes, but he forgot to put the van in park. So as soon as he jumped out, it rolled forward over a cliff and killed his wife. He said it was an accident. In his written statement, in the very first sentence, he said, I was with my wife and we were going to breakfast. But he used the word with. He didn't say my wife and I were going to breakfast. That's what most husbands would say. But he said, I was with my wife. He created that distance. Doesn't mean he's going to kill her. Doesn't mean they're going to get a divorce. But absolutely means there's tension in their relationship that morning. So it caused him to unknowingly use the word with. I mean, it could be he just didn't want to go to breakfast. And that's why he used the word with. But when you have a suspicious death, that plays a bigger role. And it turned out he was found guilty of purposely uh, killing his wife. So the word with doesn't always mean deception, but it always means distance. So you're looking to see, is that distance appropriate or is there a better way of saying it? Now, let's go back to 2002, the the example of Detective uh, Usensky. Can you, you share that case with us? Yeah, this was a de- uh, detective who... Um, Said he parked his car along a highway. It was not a major highway, four lanes on bo- or two lanes on both sides, but not heavily trafficked. And was just walking around, looking in the ditch. And as he walked back to his patrol car, the sun came out from behind a cloud, and he saw something shining in the ditch. So he bent down, picked it up, and he realized what it was based on his training. It was a pipe bomb. So he called his chief. They called the uh, State Bureau of Investigation. They shut down the highway. It was a live bomb, and they detonated the next day, he took two ATF agents out to show him where he found this pipe bomb, and lo and behold, there was a second bomb in the ditch. So they called the SBI and shut down the highway and detonated that bomb as well. When ATF conducted their investigation, they started looking at this officer that perhaps he planted these two pipe bombs and pretended to find them for the publicity, and they charged him with that. And unlike most defendants, he took the stand and testified in his own defense. And under uh, cross-examination by the assistant U.S. attorney, he unknowingly admitted to planting these two pipe bombs. And what he said was is that um, as he, he walked about 100 yards away from his car, turned around, and as he's walking back to his patrol car, he said um, that's when I recovered the first device. Now, there are two confessions in that statement, I recovered the first device. Uh, the first one is when he said the word first. By saying the word first device is an indication he knew there was going to be a second one. I mean, if he's recalling what happened that very first day, he should have said the device, but he referred to it as the first device. Now, some people, you know, everybody in the courtroom knew there were two bombs, so some people say his memory's tainted, that's why he used the word first. But the other confession is in the word recovered. He didn't say he discovered or he found the device, he said he recovered it. And the word recovered means to regain or reclaim something. And that's exactly what he did. He put it there the night before, and the next day he recovered it. And some people will tell me, well, that's cop talk, and it is cop talk, but we use it based on its definition. We don't change the rules of uh, grammar. If you were going fishing and saw a body floating in the water, you would say you found a body. You discovered a body. You wouldn't say you recovered it. Now, if you made an effort to retrieve the body, the word recover may come into your vocabulary. But what that officer should have said was in his testimony, that's when I discovered the device. But instead, he used the word recovered, and he was convicted of planting those two pipe bombs. And the reason for that, he just wanted to look as a hero? Yeah, he just wanted to look as a hero. Um, uh, After they found, I think it was the first bomb, maybe it was the second one, he called his girlfriend in New York and uh, told her, watch the news tonight. Well, it didn't make national news. It wasn't that big. But So there are other indications that he was just looking for the publicity. How did he get, how did he so easily get to the the first time to find the, the, the pipe bomb? Well, that's the question. Now, see, he said he parked his car along the highway and was just walking around, just looking to see what he could see in the ditch <laughs> right. and had walked about 100 yards. You know, that's all rather suspicious. But two farmers in a couple of fields over testified that he got out of his car and walked right to it, just bent down, picked it up. But he wasn't he didn't walk 100 yards that he knew exactly where it was at. So there there was a lot of evidence uh, to convict him. So going back to the word with, how do we really know? with the word with if somebody's being untruthful well like i said it's a word we probably use every day 
and it does mean distance, but the distance is usually uh, appropriate. But the key is, is, is there a better way of saying it? For As an example I gave, um, the husband should have said, my wife and I went to breakfast. That's the better way of saying it versus I went with my wife. But there will be other times where there's just not a better way of saying it, or if you try to word it differently, it just sounds too awkward, so we have to use the word with. And again, it doesn't mean the person's being deceptive. It'll indicate distance, but that distance will probably be appropriate then. And here are other words that we also need to be paying attention, folks. Standing, sitting, laying, and lying. Why are these words important? Well, these are important because these are all action verbs. And when you try to attribute an action verb to an inanimate object, then we have a problem. Uh, now, some people will do this. So with those words, I tell people they're like 50-50. You know, some people, it indicates deception. Other people just have a habit of using it. You know, uh, your spouse may ask you, where's the remote? And you may reply, it's sitting on the TV. Well, remotes are not capable of sitting, but some people just talk that way. Or the door was standing open. You know, doors don't stand. But again, some people have a habit of saying that. But when I hear these words used, in conjunction with an inanimate object, then it just it raises that red flag. I'm going to ask a few more questions to see, try to determine if it, are they being truthful? Is that just part of their vernacular, or are they being uh, deceptive? So, in doing what you do, I take it that you have to be very, very careful with linguistics, with uh, taking things literally, and with parsing words. I guess. Yeah, we have to remember again. There's different vernacular. Uh, people have different. Uh, education levels. Uh, if English is not a person's first language, then that may cause them to use the wrong verb tense, the wrong pronoun. So we have to factor these in. And we're not looking for just one thing to say, hey, you're being deceptive because you said it that way. You know, we're looking for several indications of deception before we come to that conclusion. And here are four more words. This, that, these, and those. Why are these words, no pun intended, important in detecting detection, uh, deception? Well, the word this uh, indicates uh, closeness versus the word that indicates distance. Um, if you were at a party and introducing two people to each other, they're standing right next to you, you would say, you know, maybe Tom, this is Joe. You use the word this because Joe and Tom are very close to each other. If Bob is standing across the room, you may say that is Bob over there because the word that indicates distance. And those are the appropriate ways to use them. And so what we're looking for is, uh, in the case perhaps maybe a victim, if the victim refers to the attacker using the word this, um, that would raise a red flag. But why show closeness to that attacker versus that? Um, and so that's what we're looking for. Is it, is it used appropriately? Now, we have to take into consideration that both those words, this and that, also indicate specificity. And so... A person may use these words to specify what they're talking about. But it would be unusual, again, for a victim to use the word this and referring to uh, their attacker, uh, this man attacked me, versus uh, perhaps that man. And it all depends on how, again, how, uh, how the word is being used in the statement. So these, can we call it anomalies, when somebody says, you know, this man as opposed to the man, are these can these be used against somebody, or is it just in order to eliminate possibilities? Well, it helps us eliminate suspects, but it also would point towards you know perhaps this person's being deceptive. You know, again, in the case with the words this and that, if a person claimed they were attacked in a parking lot while walking to their car, and they made the statement, you know, this man attacked me, all of a sudden this man came out of nowhere. Um, I expect them to say that man or a man. But the word this, again, indicates closest. Now, it also indicates specificity, so they may be specifying which man they're talking about. But most people would probably say a man attacked me because they don't know who the man is versus this man. And so it, it would just raise a red flag and ask a few more questions, try to determine is this person giving me a truthful statement about being attacked or are they making it up or you know, did they know this person that attacked them? And here's something fascinating you know i really never thought about this but i i've heard it many times from people who are lying i guess you say that you've noticed in your re years of research that deceptive people will often choose 
the number three. Why is that? Well, I'm not sure why it is. Uh, some people view the number three as being uh, a complete number. We have uh, birth, life, and death, body, mind, and spirit, three primary colors. So by giving you a number that begins with three or the number three itself, I'm giving you the complete number. Now, I like this theory a little bit better. A lot of nursery rhymes and fairy tales that we heard as kids use the number three. Uh, Goldilocks and the three bears. Uh, the three pigs. Three, three little pigs. And a lot of subtle references to the numbers th- three. Jack climbed the beanstalk three times and Rumpelstiltskin spun straw in the gold three times, gave three guesses at his name. And we all know if you rub that genie's magic lamp, you're going to get your... Three, three wishes. wishes, yeah. So maybe we've associated number three with things that we now know are deceptive. These are not true stories. So when we have to come up with a number that we know is not true, three is the number that pops into our head. Any reference to the number three, you know, I was attacked by three men. I left the house at three o'clock. You know, they stole $300. Not an absolute, not as strong as the word never, but it's something, you know, we want to take a look at. If a person was attacked by three men, that's what they're going to tell us. But that'll be the only indication of deception, and I would conclude it's a truthful story. But I bet there are some exceptions. I bet you, you see, if you're a police officer, you're chasing somebody who's swerving, you stop them. The person's not going to say, I've had three drinks tonight. They'll probably say two. Yep, that's the one exception. When it has to do with alcohol, and you're right, every officer knows what that number is. It's always two. So now, that, I had two drinks, officer. That would be the exception, you know. when That would be the, would be the one exception, yeah. So it's, it's any number, 300, 3,000, if it starts with a three. If it starts with a three, don't take it as being an accurate number. Now, sometimes if people don't know the number, they'll use a number that begins with three. So they're not being deceptive, but we can't take it as being an accurate number. I mean, years ago, Al Michaels did Monday Night Football uh, for uh, ABC Network for 20 years, and then it's been a while now, but several years ago, it switched to the cable network ESPN with that Al Michaels departure. Uh, when Al Michaels was interviewed by Brian Gumble on HBO's uh, Real Sports, Al Michaels told Brian Gumble, I've been doing Monday Night Football for 20 years. So it feels like it's been about three. Now, he could have said 10. That would be half or five. But why did he say three? Well, because he's uncertain what it feels like. So that's the number that popped into his head. He wasn't being deceptive. But again, we can't take the number three as always being an accurate number. And what we're discussing, folks, even though it sounds like only law enforcement, this is something you can apply on a daily basis. In my case, my experience was with business. I used to track people around the world who were committing financial fraud. And, you know, I wish I had all these tools back then. But um, what about lengthy sentences? You know, sometimes you just want a yes or no answer and you get somebody that goes on tangents. Is Lengthy sentence, is that a sign of deception? It can be a sign of deception in terms of uh, a person may just keep talking to kind of talk around you or talk around the question that was asked of them. Also, with lengthy sentences, what I tell people is that the shortest sentence is the best sentence. Extra words give us extra information. So you're looking for those qualifying words. You know, I don't know what's going on. That's the best sentence. I don't know for sure what's going on. It's a longer sentence and indicates, you know, that the person does know what's going on because of those words for sure. So if you remember that rule that the shortest sentence is the best sentence, that one principle alone can help you to obtain a wealth of information because extra words give us extra information. What about fragmented or unusual phrases? Sometimes people are talking and it almost it looks like they're cutting the sentence off and it makes no sense. Is this used by deceivers because they caught themselves saying almost, saying something they shouldn't and are now back backpedaling? In some cases, it may be, yeah, they're about to say something and realize uh, I can't say that. That's incriminating. So they, they cut themselves off in mid-sentence or in mid-word and then uh, change it. It's also an indication that perhaps the story's not coming from memory. Again, if it's coming from memory, you know, it's like a parade pass in front of them as they describe what happened and everything flows in sequential order. But when they get to that part, they don't want to talk about something. They want to withhold this information. While that parade disappears, they no longer have, it's no longer coming from memory. And so sometimes people will give a fragmented sentence or they have these pauses or the, the ahs or ums because now they've got to think about what am I going to say versus 
it just flows from their memory. So sometimes a fragmented sentence can indicate it, it's not coming from memory, it's coming from their imagination. I, I hate to give any ideas, Mark, but after reading your books and, and my notes here, are we giving people ideas in order to become professional liars? Well, my seminars, that's not one of my objectives, but I do joke <laughs> around saying this class does teach you how to be a better liar. Um, but what's, what you'll find, though, is that still, uh, it, you know, it's difficult to uh, tell a deceptive, give a deceptive statement without revealing that it is there is deception there. Because people always word their statement based on all their knowledge. And that's why it's, we can then detect deception because people give us more information than what they realize. And so even though you may have certain techniques, you know, not to use this word, not to use this phrase, and that definitely will help your statement sound believable, it will still, that deception will still show up in that statement in some form or fashion. It makes it a little bit harder for an interviewer uh, to detect that. And again, we know some people are better liars than others, uh, but it will still be there. And it's just, it's hard to fight that instinct of, of uh, how am I going to phrase this statement? Because there's several ways you can phrase a statement, and people always phrase that statement based on all their knowledge. What about, and I don't mean to bring this up, but you know, th there was a movie years ago called Rendition. You know what extraordinary rendition is during you know, the, the, uh, the war on terror years. Uh, when you have somebody, and they are tortured, they are, they're answering under duress, Basically, it's the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish here, detecting if they're lying. But sometimes when they're questioned in, in such a way, we may be able to manifest answers that we want, but not the real ones. That's possible. I mean, you should always, you know, there's a difference between an interview and an interrogation. Interrogation, you know, ratchets it up a little bit more. And, and so you're a little bit harder with the person could even evolve, as you're mentioning, getting into a bit of a torture, waterboarding, what have you. But you should always start out with the interview. But in some cases, the person still is showing signs of being deceptive, don't want to give the information up. And so not so much with law enforcement, but um, in, in the military, perhaps, or our clandestine organizations, you know, they may move into more of an interrogation mode. And, yeah, you do run that risk of where a person even may crack, so to speak, and give you the information, but then you don't know if the information is it accurate. I mean, you have to determine that by comparing it with other information you have. They may just give you something so that you'll stop, you know, torturing them. And so, you know, you don't want to get to that step. Obviously, you would you know, prefer to, to uh, do an interview, determine this person's withholding information. And again, how you go about getting that, there are different ways of doing it. You may just have to point out to them, I know you're lying to me because of this, this, and this. Um, and again, you got to remember that person you're interviewing doesn't know what you know. And so you may have information that already indicated they're, they're being deceptive. But it's all a matter of how you play your cards at that point once you discover that they are being uh, deceptive and withholding information. In your years of experience in er interrogating, not interrogating, interviewing hundreds of people. Did you ever find people that you found to be very credible when in fact they were lying to you? Not to my knowledge. Um, you know, I've had people that I knew they were being deceptive, but they, they still wouldn't give up the information. I mean, in my case, I, as a U.S. Marshal, I'm looking for a fugitive. So, I, you know, I, I know they know where this person's hiding. They're telling me they don't. You know, but I can't get it out of them. They're just not going to give it up, and there's not a whole lot I can do in terms of the interview itself. I have other, you know, tactics I can use. But I've never encountered um, people that, you know, here I thought they were telling the truth the entire time. It turns out they were lying. I mean, again, there, there's been cases I've had where a person sounded very believable, but there's always that one or two things that indicate to me now there's something wrong because because of the way he answered that question or because he phrased it a certain way. And so you, you got to go with that. You got to you got to eliminate those before you can finally say, OK, I think this person is being truthful. I'm sure that as a U.S. Marshal, there's the international uh, factor to this different cultures, different ways of, of answering questions. Did you find that some other countries have different ways of expressing their deception? 
Linguistically, no, and I haven't done a lot of research in terms of uh, how people phrase statements in, in other languages. Now, we know with nonverbal communication techniques, the body language, that, that does differ. I mean, some cultures, we like to say in our culture, if you don't maintain eye contact, it indicates deception. And for the most part, it does. I mean, if a person just stares at you, that's a problem. Most people maintain eye contact, look away, and then resume it again. But in other countries, uh, no, you don't mean maintain eye contact. Uh, uh, if you're talking to a person of authority, then you should be looking down at the ground. So there are a lot of differences there. But linguistically speaking, um, it, it pretty much is it's the same thing. Now we have you know different words that mean different things in different languages, but there are some techniques with the statement analysis that are still tried and true. I mean, if a person you know, people generally will give you an answer when you ask them a question, but you have to determine did they answer your specific question. And if they didn't, it means they're withholding information. And, and a technique like that, that's going to that's gonna apply to no matter what language they're speaking. In your case, if they were withholding information, what would have been step two in that interrogation then? Well, step two would be to, um, you know, I may uh, have them write the statement first give me a written statement, then I will analyze it, then I will have them give me the verbal statement. And a lot of times it's, well, I just wrote it down for you. I understand that, but go ahead and tell me in your own words now what, what happened or what you did or what you saw. And so I'm looking to see if there's, if it's consistent or are there any inconsistencies. And if they do give an inconsistency, that's something I can present them with. You just told me this, but you just wrote down, but you wrote the opposite down here or something different here. And so you're confronting them on their own statement. Uh, and that's what a lot of it gets down to. Eventually, you may have to confront them on on the language, how they're phrasing it. Ideally, hopefully, you have other information as well, um, or other people you've interviewed that can you can use some of that information uh, to confront them as well as to you know they're being deceptive or they're, they're withholding information. What about the pronouns most used by deceivers? Well, the pronouns uh, you know give us responsibility. And sometimes people don't want to take responsibility, so we see with the pronouns. You know, we should have done a better job. Well, if that if that was that person's sole responsibility, then maybe a more accurate statement would be, "I should have done a better job." But by using the pronoun "we," he's trying to spread the blame, passing blame, passing the blame around. But you know, pronouns um, again give us responsibility. Uh, the pronouns, you know, "we" and "us" are ones to look at because "we" and "us." indicate plurality, but they also indicate a partnership, that two people agree to do something together. It doesn't mean they're best of friends. It can be a very limited partnership. But it does mean that two people cooperate together and agree to do something. So the question is, should there be a pronoun we or us in that statement? And most of the time, the answer is yes. But there are some situations where no, we would not expect the victim to partner up with the attacker. Uh, for example, maybe a cashier was robbed and, you know, maybe the cashier said, you know, we went into the storage room and he tied me up. Well, that we means the cashier and our robber formed a partnership together. You know, most cashiers are going to say he forced me into the storage room. He dragged me in the storage room and tied me up. But that we indicates that uh, the cashier was in on the robbery, cooperated, or perhaps was just making up the story. There was no robbery at all. So you're looking to see how they use the pronoun we. I mean, there's a case in which a woman was kidnapped. Um, this is down in Florida. She was released. And in her statement to the police, she said, um, you know, we went to the hotel. Well, it should be he took me to the hotel, not we. So the we, that's a big red flag that you weren't kidnapped, that you were going along with this. And it turned out, you know, she wasn't kidnapped. She was with her boyfriend. They're trying to extort money from her husband, you know, through a ransom note. So you're looking to see how these pronouns uh, are used. There was a case... Back in 2003, I think it was, and you mentioned your book, uh, The Death of Brian Douglas Wells, remember? The, the, the pizza delivery man who was killed by a remotely controlled bomb fastened yeah. to his neck. Can you tell us more? But that is a fascinating case, and I'd like to, to revisit it as to how that conspiracy really worked. It was in Erie, Erie, Pennsylvania. He was a pizza delivery guy, went on a pizza run and didn't come back. And I think it was hours later, he shows up, he's robbing a bank. So he wasn't very good at it. When the police moved in to arrest him, he said, hey, back off. I got a bomb attached to my neck. 
well, believe what people tell you. So they backed off. They set him down against a patrol car. You could see there was something attached to his neck, and they called for the bomb squad. But while he sat there, he told the authorities that three men put this bomb on his neck and forced him to rob this bank. And unfortunately for Brian Wells, before the bomb squad arrived, it detonated and killed Brian Wells. So the speculation was that Brian Wells put this bomb on his neck. So if he got caught, he could say, I was forced to rob a bank or did three men, you know, cause him, force him to rob this bank. Well, again, the one, the first indication of deception I saw was his use of the number three. Now, again, maybe it was three men that, that did that. It's something we want to check out. But, you know, that's that that's the deceptive number that we see. Well, it turned out, uh, I believe there was five people involved in this conspiracy. Brian Wells was, was in on it reluctantly. He wanted some money, I believe, for some drugs. They said, if you do this, we'll give you some, we'll give you some money. But he did not know it was a live bomb. Uh, one person, of course, Brian Wells. Oh, so died. he was being used, really? He was being used. Uh, one person died of cancer. One turned government foreman that left uh, two people that were tried and convicted of uh, this conspiracy to rob a bank. So it turns out there were five people involved, not three. Um, he was in on it reluctantly. But, yeah, that was I didn't see too many statements coming from him. Of course, you know, he died at the scene. Uh, but that was the one thing I saw when he was just sitting there. He blurted out that three men forced him to rob this bank. Now, are there words and phrases used by deceivers to emphasize their truthfulness when, in fact, it has the opposite effect? Well, yeah, people and, you know, and your listeners can testify this. You hear it all the time where people say, you know, I swear to God, I swear my mother's grave or, you know, honest to God uh, and trying to get us to believe that they're giving us a truthful statement. And again, these are words we want to listen for. Don't let them go in one ear and out the other because it's an indication, not an absolute, but an indication that perhaps they are being deceptive. Again, remember our rule, the shortest sentence is the best sentence. You know, I didn't take the money versus I swear to God I didn't take the money. Now, as I mentioned earlier, some people, especially in the presence of law enforcement, will assume that you know law enforcement is not going to believe them, so they have to use these phrases right off the bat to try to get law enforcement to believe them. But other times, people are guilty, and so they'll use these phrases to try to convince us they, they didn't do something. I don't mean to give tricks out to people to, to try to circumvent the system, but I know so many people get, uh, they're, they're afraid to say the wrong thing, and they usually use what you just said. I swear to God, I, I only had two drinks or this and that. What is the best way to maintain composure and without coming across as a liar, because I know some people who get nervous and start uttering words sounding like they're lying, but they're not. Thanks for listening to part one of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, head on over to the member section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. You don't want to miss the rest. You can purchase all of Mark McLeish's book by going to his website at SelectiveAnalysis.com or Amazon.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store where you can find great products like pure organic sulfur, rebounders, turmeric, and other great supplements. Thank you.